Central at noon on Sportsnet 960. The Fan. Another step in the right direction for the Calgary Flames. Welcome to Hockey Central at Noon. I'm Peter Klein. He is Logan Gordon. Thank you for tuning in on a day off between Battles of Alberta. Battle of Alberta's? Either way, the Flames and Oilers play each other twice in three days. This is the day that they don't. Welcome to the program. Uh, we have Eric DeHatcher coming up at 1230. I can't wait to break this one down, so I'm not going to. Let's chat with Peter Labardius. Flames Insider, Peter Lubardius, brought to you by the Gemini Group Home Renovations. Your home renovations should be a reflection of who you are. Give your home the Gemini difference. The Gemini Group, now offering air miles, reward miles. Visit GeminiGroup.ca. I think we were in fits and spurts, but I thought overall we did a pretty good job. Uh, we can play better. I think that we lost coverage a couple of times, cost us goals, but overall I thought it was a pretty good solid game and I think our goalie probably the last three or four minutes made some big saves to hang on for the win the coach with a pretty good summary of uh, a pretty fun game last night uh, over there at the Dome, Mr. Labardius. How are you today, first of all, sir? Uh, I am excellent. And a couple of quick observations. So it's an optional style practice today. So neat things that people would be interested in. From a visual perspective, Mr. Klein, all the players on the ice are wearing two different socks. Don't know what the significance of that is, um, and not even going to try and guess, but somebody will ask. So that's one observation. But from a hockey standpoint, um, not breaking news, but a very interesting group of individuals. So in front of me right now, and they've been working for about the last 20 minutes, have been Gaudreau, Kachuk, Manjapani, and Dubé. And those are four forwards that you see not on the same power play unit, but different power play units. And at the other end was Anderson and Shillington going through some shooting drills, moving their feet to open up shooting lanes. And it, it looks like some individual power play work. And the interesting observation for me is, you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of that necessarily. You know, focus on the wingers with board work and decisions. But the other neat thing is that because there's no centerman and no defense, now this is just a guess, but not only is it individual work for the wingers in their roles as they ran through the drills, I think it's pretty neat that you also get a better feel in that group because you're also going through drills in somebody else's position. So, to me, a neat little observation this morning, and think that uh, it, it's it's interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. No, I can imagine. And, uh, yeah, like you said, the, the position groupings in that are, are quite interesting. And I do think it's noteworthy they're working on the power play, as that was probably the the part of the game from last night that maybe needed the, the most work, as that seemed to be when Edmonton would gain some momentum. As 5-on-5, five five, I like the Flames a lot, but coming out of those power plays, it did seem like Edmonton maybe got a bit of a boost off of what the Flames were unable to do with the advantage. Well, it's true. It's true. That That's for sure. And, again... You know, when when you're going over things at practice with your team, it, it really is the combination of helping individuals get better in their respective roles, five-on-five, five, power play. You know, one of the nuances last night was Noah Hannafin had some power play time as well. So just thought, you know, for kind of the most up-to-date stuff that before we – really get to breaking it down that I thought today that was kind of a neat place to begin. Uh, also, looking on social media, the multicolored socks are for World Down Syndrome Day coming up later this week. Uh, Craig Conroy and Rob Kerr hosting Let's Talk Hockey tonight for the prep program uh, to help support inclusion for families and children with Down Syndrome. So I, I would suggest that is likely the significance of the, the multicolored socks. There's no, the there's no doubt. And when you think about Daryl Sutter... And, you know, Chris um, couldn't have a cause that would be more near and dear to his heart. And, you know, with 
uh, being a parent myself of a youngster, my son, on the autism spectrum, it's, it's, it's a beautiful tribute to some beautiful people. Absolutely. Um, for the, the hockey game last night, I, my kind of takeaway from last night is that that felt like a game that the Flames lose three weeks ago, where Edmonton pushes back, and we saw a number of times when the other team pushed back, this Flames team didn't exactly handle it that well. And, and I thought they handled it quite nicely with Edmonton tying it. Calgary responds with the goal to, to take the lead. That, that was my biggest takeaway from last night's action. Well, what kind of caught your eye? Well, interesting what mine was, and it's somewhat similar but different. So through the general manager of the team, Brad Treleving, recently, he talked about your team, you know, you can't have these big dips, Peter, between A games and what he called D games. So I thought the Montreal game on Saturday, the 3-1 win, was, was an A game right up and down your lineup. There, there was absolutely no passengers. Team game was great. Checked every box that I truly believe is important to Daryl Sutter, possessing the puck, the amount of shots that you would get, the way you defended. You know, you limited Montreal to 25 shots, not a lot of quality. You dictated the game for almost all of it. That was an A game. Last night, understand this. When you deal with McDavid and Dreisaitl, you know, that's a different opponent, right? And a different challenge. And your ability to, you know, not shut out, but limit the damage was so, so important for the group. And so, you know, I looked at it this way. You know, if you graded all the different players, there were some definite A grades, you know, the goalie was an A grade. Um, you know, I thought the backland line with Lucic and Mangiapane, you know, they they were great. Uh, the Lindholm line more than held its end of the bargain. Um, so that's, but overall, was it as clean and tidy as you'd like? No. Lots to work on? Yes. That's what the head coach of the team said off the top of this segment. So... Very solid, you know, give it a B or B or a B plus, and I don't discount what you talked about at all. And, yeah, it probably was a game that, you know, without some of the foundation that's been laid here the last few weeks and the belief, you know, the goal by Hannafin is just so incredibly important because it goes from 3-1 to 3-3, and, you know, the Oilers were pushing, and, you know, Hannafin, good play at his own end, jumps up at the other end with a great read, odd man situation, makes no mistake. And we'll get to know a little bit more because uh, I think he's a great story to flush out today, he and his partner, Tanev. So, you know, and then down the stretch when, I don't know about you, some people thought that they looked comfortable uh, I didn't think that was very comfortable last few minutes, but I know who <laughs> slammed the door shut, and that was uh, Mr. Markstrom, you know, who saved his best work for the end of the game when his team needed him the most. Yeah, he was excellent in those closing moments there, and I thought it was like we've seen that type of goaltending from Markstrom for full sixty-minute nights sometimes, and and so I think he's probably appreciating that it's only required for five or ten minutes at a time sometimes. Yeah, I think you're a hundred percent correct that he would be appreciating that, and we'll flip the script a little today um, and talk about Jacob in, in this regard. A couple of things. I truly believe, and I think most people do, that, you know, great goaltending, I feel, is when your team needs you the most in a game. You know, we hear a lot the simple line and its effective line about giving your team a chance to win. And I think the next level guys are the guys that when the game is on the line, you know, you could be down in a game in the first period. You know, you could be up in a game with the team pressing like last night. But, you know, not unlike any other position or in any other sport, your ability to execute at a high level when it's on the line, isn't that the great separator between winning and losing, Peter? I, I always think it is. In every sport, 
in every situation. And I think that's the great separator as much as, you know, save percentage and, and all of that. You know, the great guys between the pipes find a way, not unlike defensemen and forwards, to elevate at the best time. And, and Jacob did that. The other interesting note about the goaltending from last night is, you know, even though he made a mistake, uh, I will have this conversation with anyone. Mike Smith may have made a mistake last night, but Peter, his ability to play the puck, like he might make a bad one, but think about what he does with his ability to get the rims behind the net, his ability to feed transition. And for an Oilers team that, you know, we know is not the world's greatest necessarily on the back. What a bonus that is. And it makes a huge Mm -hmm. difference for them. Now, the comparison piece is Jacob Markstrom, who I don't think gets enough credit for two things. His ability to not only play the puck, but his high hockey IQ to make reads, to make it doesn't, you know, he's not necessarily going to make 100 foot passes like Mike, but a lot like Kerry Price, your ability to know when to get out, to stop pucks stop rims, make little quick passes. He does an excellent job. And here's goaltending coach Jason LaBarbera on those two things, ability to play the puck and his hockey IQ. Yeah, it's he, he's actually elite at it, to be honest with you. And, and, and I didn't know how he would be coming in. Um, he's a lot better of a puck handler than I thought he was going to be. And, and, and he's just gotten better with it. And He's confident with it, and he, he's the, bi- the big thing with him is he he takes he's got good reads. Like he he gets out of his net, but he's he's scanning the ice before he even gets a puck, so he knows what the play is going to be next. And and the one thing too, you know, you know, him and Chris Tana played a lot together. They they, they have a good uh, good rapport with, with each other. And I know uh, you know Jacob likes to to try to find Tanny as much as he possibly can because um, you know Chris is is, is a, such a smart player. So he's done a really good job with that so far. And that, that hockey IQ that they talk about, or that Jason talks about in that clip, you really see it, like, not only with playing the puck, but also the positioning that he gets into. Very rarely do you see Markstrom scrambly between the pipes right. or the flames. He always seems to be in that right position. And that that is not by accident. You don't look no. into that as much as he has. That is an awareness of what you are seeing in the hockey game. Peter... Uh, fantastic observation um it's so true it comes with great work it comes with understanding your opponent what they do that that's how people become great is it's not just what you're good at it's continuing to work and challenge yourself on the things that you're always trying to grow knowing shooters situations understanding you know what's in front of you like a you know that's why i've always felt such great similarity in sports between you know what a catcher does in baseball and in some ways what a goalie can do for you in hockey i just don't ever think you know we quickly go to hockey iq when it comes to goalies and and we're underselling them especially on the good ones Mm mm-hmm no, I completely agree. Um, chatting with Peter Labardius here, our Calgary Flames insider on Hockey Central at noon on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. We talk about uh, A games or B games or D games. I don't even know if we've got down to an A-minus game for Tanev and Hannafin yet this season. They have been <laughs> so, so good. And the, the turnaround for Noah Hannafin the last little while has been really fun to watch and I think really important for this hockey team. It is. And let me start, though, first with his partner, Chris Tanev. So yesterday on the coaches show with Daryl Sutter, I asked about Tanev. And, and you know, he coached against Tanev for a long time. Now he has him. So a couple of interesting things. So Daryl, obviously, you know, will make some comparisons. So two things stood out. So I asked him based on because, you know, one guy I've always felt you know, in the Western Conference over the years, it was really underappreciated. Well, until he was helping Canada win a gold medal in 2014 and a World Cup in 2016 playing with Shea Weber was Mark Edward Vlasic. I've always kind of felt that Tanev was, you know, kind of 
Mark Edward Vlasic light. And so Daryl didn't make that comparison when I prefaced it that way, but he likened him a lot on the L.A. Kings to Willie Mitchell. Just steady, solid, really reliable. And, and also went to give Chris great credit in, in this regard and say that you could play Chris with anyone in any situation, anywhere, anytime. That's, that's, high, that's high praise. That's really high praise. And I've always felt that, and I've watched it, you just learn a lot, I think, when you get to watch a player each and every day, game in and game out, is Chris Tanev's game is very selfless. I think it talks a lot about, you know, a guy who doesn't get enough credit for his ability to make plays, a guy who skates and is way more mobile, you know, steady, block shots but he has those other things in his arsenal but the other part is because of his selfless nature and how he does his job so well and so consistently he makes other people around him better and that fast forwards to Noah Hannafin think about his story Peter you will not convince me that you know after the bubble in potential trade talks, if the Flames were going to make a deal on their defense, I think one guy that always seemed to come into the conversation was Noah Hannafin. And I think he knew it. So, again, when you're almost 400 games in, you know, you started your career in Carolina at 18 as a very high pick. I think Noah really challenged himself this year to say, no. I'm better than that. I'm a guy who's always had great tools, incredible skater, size. But I truly believe his mindset after the bubble, somebody found a way, starting with him, to go, there's more here. I've been told there's more here. I'm going to truly challenge myself to find more. So in the case of Noah Hannafin, I think in – a number of months, wouldn't you agree? And maybe you do, maybe you don't. Haven't we got to a point right now with him that he might have been the first guy on the back end to go to now almost completely 180? Yes, yeah, I completely agree. Um, If we were doing a list of untouchables, he would probably be in there now based on how well that, that pairing has played. And... I, I did push back on the trade talks when, when we would have these discussions during the summer, just w- with some unpredictability on that left side. But he, they, they were certainly happening, if nothing else. So, yes, no, it, it is quite the, the turnaround, uh, if nothing else, on the narrative of Noah Hannafin. So that, that's a great story. That talks to maturity and growth. That talks to, you know, what we speak of in this segment a lot, is that, again, just because you have great talent and you get into the league early, you know, the Daryl Sutter special status line doesn't mean you're ready for all of it. You need to grow and experience and go through the ups and downs and trials and tribulations. And in the case of everyone, Peter, sometimes in our life it will take when we are struggling and trying to get to a different place, no matter what it is, in our job, in our relationship, as a parent, Sometimes we're lucky. We have people in our journey that help us think it, see it, or really believe in us. And every time Noah Hannafin is asked about himself and his season and his growth, listen to where he goes first. Here's Noah when asked about that after the game last night. You know, I've, I've learned a lot, you know, over those past six years. And having a guy like Tanny come in just to play with him, you know, he's made my life a lot easier. And, and um, he's allowed me to, to take another step and be more liable in certain situations. So it's uh, it's been great to, to have him there help me out. And, and, and I do feel like I've taken a little bit of a step, especially, uh, you know, defensively, just being more liable. There is nothing better in anything, like in anything I've ever done, in in my life in my career that when you connect with someone at a level where you feel at ease where you feel comfortable when when you don't question 
when you feel like you can be at your best. And I think that is truly the combination of Noah challenging himself and at an important time finding just the perfect fit and guy for him. And maybe I'm making too much of it. I'm not sure I am. No, I'm in complete agreement with you. And there is like seven different ways I could spin off of this. And um, I will do a couple at least right now. But I do think that this shows the value. And this is one of the things that I think we struggle with in terms of hockey analysis right now, where... The, the contract for Tanev may not look the best in the last year of this, but the impact he has had on this hockey team already, I would say, is worth that contract. And I think we have a tough time quantifying the stuff in the room and the, the impact that a player can have on other players in that locker room and how to properly compensate that in a salary cap world. I think that's one part of hockey analysis that, that people are still trying to find their way on a little bit. Peter, you know what I really think that's all about? Hmm. I think it's I think it's about experience and I think it's about being around the game. I think it's about watching the game. I think it's about connecting to the game. But more importantly, you know what I feel it is? It's about listening to the people that know. Again, listening. It's it's not about a graph or a piece of paper. It's it's you know we can all get to those places on our own. I'm just such a big believer that, you know, experience, asking, listening, being around teams, being involved, and thinking it at a higher level allows you to get to those types of places. And I know on my journey, and I, and I, I, I am. I love this game beyond I love sports beyond belief. But the greatest lesson for me has become in understanding how fortunate I am to have been around this game my whole life and being around teams and people. And I have always seen great value in those as much as I come on here and probably don't always represent myself. I have strong opinions have a big personality, but make no mistake, in my heart of hearts, it's always been about being lucky enough to be around and being influenced by those who are in the game in a different way and do it for a living. Um, just about time for us to wrap up, but uh, I know you wanted the, the last couple of minutes for a, a bit of a shout-out, so uh, the floor is yours, sir. Well, it, it fits today perfectly. So, you know, I've had so many great teammates. I have a great teammate on the other end of the phone. Um, I've been so fortunate. But today, an incredible teammate of mine by the name of Sam Cosentino turns 50. 50. Turned 50 today. We met in the early 2000s. I joke about it a lot because of what he said. We did a game one night, an American League game in Hamilton. We didn't know one another really. Um, we did a game together, and to this day he goes, that whole game, the way you looked at me and dealt with me, he said, I thought you were going to stab me right through the heart, which is one of his great lines. Well, that night... started an incredible friendship, an incredible partnership. I got to spend six years doing games with someone who, for me, made me better, for me, bought into the program, and I'm grateful for that time, and I'm grateful for him. So happy birthday, pal. Love you. Wish I could be with you in Ontario today, but Sam Cosentino, love you, pal. Thanks for being one of the great people in my life and on this sports journey. Very well put, sir. Thank you for that, and uh, we will chat tomorrow.
Have a great one, everybody. Flames Insider, Peter Lubardius, brought to you by the Gemini Group Home Renovations. Your home renovations should be a reflection of who you are. Give your home the Gemini difference. The Gemini Group, now offering Air Miles Reward Miles. Visit GeminiGroup.ca. Continuing on here on Hockey Central at noon, I'm Peter Klein. Logan Gordon is our producer today, and he is sitting in the Iconic studio, powered by Iconic Electric and Controls. I don't know that for sure. He might be standing. Uh, Iconic is proudly owned and operated from Western Canada since 2008. They take great pride in giving back to the communities we all work and live in. Diversity, it's Iconic. Contact them today at IconicEC.ca. Everyone loves trade deadline season. We know that this trade deadline season going to be a little bit different, but that doesn't make it any less desperate for some of the teams involved. We'll dive into some of those teams with our NHL insider, Eric DeHatchuk, coming up next. Hockey Central at noon on Sportsnet 960. The Fan. We continue to creep closer to the NHL's trade deadline on a year where we have no idea what to expect. We give the unenviable task to Eric DeHatchuk for us to predict the unpredictable uh, as we welcome in our NHL insider for our regular Tuesday hit. Mr. DeHatchuk, how are you today, sir? I'm good, I'm good. But you're right, the, this whole trade deadline this year, uh, I mean, you know, I talked to managers and, and, and a lot of different people around the league uh, about it, and, uh, and, and it, it's crazy how the first words out of everybody's mouth have very little to do with hockey and everything to do with finances. And I get it that this has been, a, you know, a, a part of the conversation ever since the NHL entered a salary cap world, but I have not ever seen it as as influential as it is this year where you know and, and, and what i've found in the past is a lot of times you know like a trade will be announced and, and fans will look at it and they'll be puzzled by it and then they'll because they're still thinking of it as a you know this hockey player for that hockey player and it's like oh no you got to factor in his salary and the term and and pending free agency etc etc so i think you know more sophisticated hockey fans have come around to the fact that sometimes it just doesn't make a lot of sense well, you know, my suspicion just from sort of taking the temperature of, of the waters right now is that there's going to be a whole lot of deals that make no sense on, on paper. And, and it's strictly going to be because almost every deal has to be factored through the capologist on a team. Those are really the first half MVPs of, uh, of most teams. These, the guys, the, the people who are in charge of moving players on and off the taxi squad to save a few dollars here in the hope that, um, you know, four weeks from now or whenever the trade deadline hits, that there's a, you've, you've squeezed enough dollars to add, add a player because it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. And, and I think that's one reason why we've seen this gridlock that we've seen so far. I mean, if the, the biggest trade of the year is Toronto's seventh defenseman for Columbus's fifth string goalie, um, that's not a lot to get excited about. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, I don't want to go too far off the beaten path, but just hearing that, it, it really is interesting how much the salary cap has changed the conversation around everything in hockey since it came in. Like, I, I use Milan Lucic as an example. Milan Lucic is a good hockey player, but Milan Lucic is not a $5 million hockey player in the salary cap world, but that's how much he makes, so everyone thinks he sucks. And yeah. like, it, it's just, it, it is, it, it's so interesting how this one thing has really changed the entire conversation around a sport. Yeah, it really has. It, it, it has completely skewed it because you're right. In the old days, when I started out, you know, nobody knew what salaries were. That, 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 that's one thing. Like salaries, NHL salaries weren't published until about the mid '90s, when when Bob Goodnow took over the Players Association, and it became a a, a more common thing to know what a player uh, was earning. We, we didn't know. I, you know, like on that '89 Stanley Cup team, I had no idea, and I still don't to this day, what the various salaries of the players were. So the first. 10 to 15 years that I was covering it, it was strictly about the player and, 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 and how good he was playing and how, how poorly he was playing. And, and now everything is filtered in, in, into the salary cap. So uh, I always, uh, the, the player that I use as a real good example of that is Jay Bowmeister when, when he played here. So uh, again, I, I was used to evaluating someone just on the basis of how they played. So I, I always liked Bowmeister's game. He wasn't like a, an outspoken guy, but I just thought he was quietly effective. And he played a ton of minutes, and, and coaches trusted him. That's why he played for all of those Team Canada um, iterations. But the problem was he was making, I think, $6 million at a time when $6 million was a lot of money, and, uh, and he didn't have an offensive component to his game. And so he took an incredible amount of criticism. And I'm thinking to myself, 
my reality, what I'm seeing as a guy that's very effective on the ice but doesn't play physical and, and isn't scoring points, he's still a very, very useful player. And, and, and you, I think you can win with guys like him and, and various you know, incarnations of Team Canada and, and the people that picked those teams, they agreed too. But the narrative here was that uh, he wasn't very good. And it was only because he was making more money than, than people thought uh, that he should. So, yeah, a great point by you. And, uh, and, and so if you want to sort of veer back on topic, the, the one thing that I will tell you in, in the current era is that as soon as Anders Lee got injured in Long Island, uh, you know, I got everybody I talked to says, watch for that. And it was like, why? Well, because if, if, if the injury is serious, which it has turned out to be, then, then the Islanders are going to get some long-term injury relief, and that frees up about $7 million. So suddenly, a team that had no room to make a move is maybe the front runner for Taylor Hall. And so, you know, like everyone likes to connect the dots. What, who are the Islanders? Oh, they got that Jordan Everly guy there, and they really could use a guy to play in their top six, and Buffalo's falling apart. And, yeah, Taylor Hall makes too much money, but, you know, it's, we're halfway through the season, so, you know, you prorate the $8 million, and if Buffalo takes a little something back uh, to make it easier for you to fit the salary in, you know, maybe you get a better piece for, for Hall, and he comes in as a rental. And then magically, hopefully, if Sanders Lee does recover in time to go into the playoffs, now you've got Taylor Hall on your roster for the playoffs, and your injured player comes back. So, but it... it, it it, it points to this whole notion that that like is an injury sometimes a blessing in disguise. Well, not if you lose your captain, right? But I mean, you know, Tampa, right. you know, managed to muddle along all season long without Kucherov, and the expectation is that you know he's going to be very healthy and ready to go by the time the playoffs roll around. And they didn't have to dismantle that Cup-winning team because they were able to take his $9 million and place it on LTIR. So, again, we, you know, we, we've had this, we're about, what, eight minutes into the conversation, and we're not even talking about hockey, we're talking about money, and that's, that's <laughs> a problem, right? <laughs> but, but that's the reality that the managers are dealing with, and, and so what are we going to do? Like, I, I don't even know the, the answer to that. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about hockey. Let's talk about the, the Buffalo Sabres, who probably want to talk about anything but hockey right now, as it has been just a dumpster fire on a train wreck of a season for the Buffalo Sabres. You mentioned in the piece on The Athletic, 10 teams that need to make a move. I don't want to give the whole piece away, but um, Buffalo has a couple of contracts that look like they would be difficult to move. What can the Sabres do at, in this trade deadline season? Yeah, well, and so I, I think... You know, what you have to do if you're running Buffalo is you realize, okay, you know, the bottom has fallen out. I mean, their, their, their winning percentage is under 300 right now. So, so they have a chance to have like a, a record bad year if, uh, if they keep this up. Plus, I think the expectation, there's a lot of chatter around the National Hockey League that, that Jack Eichel's injury is quite serious and uh, there's no return date. And, and, and the reality is if, you know, like if you have a young star like Jack Eichel, and, and your season is lost anyway, is there any point in rushing him back into the lineup? And, and you know, like a, any calm, reasonable organization is going to say no. Um, you know, if, if, if there's a, a question about, uh, about the long-term health of, a, of, a, of an important player like that, you know, shut him down for the year, let him heal, and, you know, and we'll see where we're at in September when things get back to normal. So there was some talk about Eichel possibly moving. I think there will be some talk about Eichel possibly moving again in the summer um, as the Sabres, the Sabres try to figure out what path they're going to take going forward. But, but I think you can safely take him off of the various trade boards right now. And then, of course, the, the biggest salary cap albatross they have is Jeff Skinner, who signed that $9 million per year contract after the big year that he had there, and there does seem to be a disconnect there between Skinner and, and the current coach, uh, Ralph Kruger. So, so you know, you talk about the most untradeable contracts in the NHL, that probably is in the top three. Um, even, if, even if you were to take half of it back and, and make him a $4.5 million player, he, he is not producing offense like a $4.5 million player. So that, that is a big, big problem. And the only you know, 2% light I see at the end of the tunnel there is that there is an expansion draft coming up. The person who is running the expansion draft in, in Seattle is Ron Francis, who was with Carolina when they originally drafted Jeff Skinner, so knows 
you know, him inside and out. And his assistant is Jason Botterell, who was the man that, in, when he was running Buffalo, signed with a contract. So, I mean, obviously they're not going to take him at $9 million, But if, if you really sweeten the pot for Seattle, because that's the one thing that they'll have, a clean financial slate going in. So let's say you, 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 you go to them and say, we'll eat half the salary and we'll give you Risto or Risto Lane, who will, who will be your best defenseman going forward in your expansion season. And at that point, maybe $4.5 million worth of Jeff Skinner in a fresh start in an environment where the people know him and they know his concussion history, but they also know he can score some goals, um, you can work something out. So that, that, that is a complicated kind of a trade to make. But, but if, if you're Buffalo, you have to think in those terms. You have to try and figure out a way of making these real problems go away. And so those are the two biggest names there. The one player that interests me a little bit is Sam Reinhart. So Sam Reinhart was taken just ahead of Leon Dreisaitl and, and two picks ahead of, uh, of Sam Bennett. And he's, he's achieved a, a, a higher level of scoring production uh, than, than Sam Bennett has here. But there are still some questions about uh, his overall game and, and how committed he is. And, and, you know, like there are nights when you see him and, and, you know, he digs in in front of the net and scores a couple of goals. And there are other nights when you watch Buffalo and, and you don't hear his name in the play-by-play very often. But he is an interesting character because I think he's a little over five. You know, he's sort of approaching the prime of his career. And so if you're one of those teams that is looking for for pure scoring talent and you believe that a change of scenery and, and, a, and a different environment can, can get this guy into, you know, being at the kind of above-level talent that his draft implied that he was, then, then I think that there will be teams interested in him. And, and as opposed to the other two names that I mentioned, He's somebody that, you know, that potentially could move at the trade deadline. Hard to do because it's a lot of money, but, um, but, uh, but he's the one guy that I'm watching on that Buffalo team in terms of, uh, of legitimately you know, um, making a difference on, on, a, you know, on a team that, that wants to win this year. Could Ottawa kind of be the Canadian version of Buffalo? Uh, obviously, the expectations weren't as high, but if the teams up north are looking to make a move that helps them within a couple of weeks, the Ottawa Senators are kind of the only place they can go to get that. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and the, but the one thing I would say is, uh, is that Ottawa doesn't have to do it. So, so as opposed to you know the 85% of the teams in the National Hockey League that have all these financial issues we talked about, Ottawa has managed to to get their cap number down to a very reasonable place. And so as opposed to in the past when they were when they were busy selling players in, into the marketplace because they were in a rebuild, you know, now they have to, I think, kind of dig in with, with the players they, they have. And so I just don't think that there's as many players there that are available as you think. Now, obviously, you know, Ryan DeSingle as, as a rental for a team that, you know, wants someone that, you know, I guess you, you could call him a top nine four. Right? I mean, at different times he's played in the top six, at different times he's scored, you know, at a third of, you know, one goal every three games pace. But, but that's not normally who he is. But he's still someone that, that is a useful piece and probably wouldn't cost you very much. Um, and then, you know, the, the, you know, there's a couple of, of uh, UFAs on, on the blue line that could potentially interest teams that are just looking for a depth piece like a, like a Mike Riley. But I, I, I thought the same thing. I thought, you know, about a month ago that Ottawa might begin to act as a broker for a Canadian team. So, for example, a team, Ottawa makes a trade with Arizona, uh, for let's say Alex Goligoski, Goligoski, you know, quarantines for two weeks, uh, plays a handful of games, and then all of a sudden Goligoski is your depth defenseman in Calgary or Edmonton or or, or Winnipeg or you know, whoever is looking for for that kind of a, a, a of a of a warm body. And of course, there has to be something to incentivize Ottawa into doing that on your behalf. So it's effectively the kind of a three-team trade that you see all the time in the NBA that you never see in the NHL, but very complicated and. And, and every time I've run that scenario by people who are actually in the position to make the decisions, they, they say that it sounds really good in theory, but, but in, in practical terms, it's just hard to do. It's just hard to do. So, yeah, possibly, but I, I, don't, you know, I don't think, put it this way, I don't think Ottawa will be, you know, has the for sale sign out uh, in, in the same, with the same force 
that they had in past years, when they had the Eric Carlson's available, when they had the Matt Duchesne's, when they had, you know, the thing a couple of years ago was having a good year and then he was traded. So, you know, they were moving out all of the pieces then. I don't see that. The team that, that fits that, the Ottawa category, is, of course, Detroit, um, who do have an awful lot of, uh, of useful pieces who fall into that USA category uh, that I think still has uh, some work to do to get. I mean, their, their, their cap situation is good, but it could be better, uh, and it will be better uh, once the, the year ends. But I just see uh, Detroit uh, being that team more so than Ottawa. But to your point, that gets it, it's complicated because if, if you're a Canadian team trying to deal with Detroit, um, you have to deal with the quarantine, which, by the way, they, they have not given up trying to you know, lobby the government to reduce that from 14 to 7 days. And uh, we'll see if that goes anywhere. So far, it's stuck by the sounds of it, uh, but they're hoping to unstick it. And if that were to happen, that would, of course, have some implications on activity at the trade deadline, too. Continuing to talk trades with our NHL insider, Eric DeHatchuk. On the buying side of things, uh, people are going to groan, but uh, I'm going to bring up the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I know we hear about them a lot, but I think they fit this conversation perfectly because this is their best shot at winning that they have had in a very long time. It kind of feels like they need to, to do something big at this deadline, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you know what, or I would say medium. What I would okay. tell you is that, you know, if you looked at Toronto's roster a year ago, uh, they got good value for Kasperi Kapanen, and they also felt that they had to move Andreas Janssen on. Um, players in that 3 to $4 million range, but because of their, their cap issues, they, you know, they, they, they were stuck and they had, to, they, had to, they had to do something, and I thought they got really good value from Pittsburgh for, uh, for Kapanen. So because they have that additional draft capital now, they are in a position where you, know, you go out and you get a similar type of a player. So I'm talking about a mid-level forward, someone who ideally plays in, in, on your, in your top six, but at the very worst plays in, in your top nine, because they do have a lot of money tied up in those four real good offensive players, and Zach Hyman has been, you know, like, I'm done doing my mid-season reports on unsung heroes of, of the year, and, and he's in my top three there. So they, they, they're, 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 you know, they've got a great high end, uh, they've got one or two pieces in the middle. I think they believe internally that they need a little bit more, just to take some of the pressure off of the top two lines. And the player that's been most uh, you know, linked to them has been, uh, you know, the Nashville forward, uh, Michael Granlund. And, and Nashville is another team that, you know, although they played a little bit better lately, they're, they're almost at that Buffalo level in terms of being a, a dumpster fire. And then the difference there is that Nashville went out, and I believe that they signed six UFAs going into the season. So four as soon as the free agent period uh, opened and then a couple more right at Christmas when the season was starting. One was Granlin, the other was uh, Eric Hall. And I think every one of those players is available and they're all on pretty reasonable contracts. So, you know, again, if, if you're Toronto trying to make that trade, you're probably trying to do it sooner rather than, rather than later because you're dealing with the quarantine issue. But I think that when all is said and done, uh, if, if, you know, when, when the NHL lists all the transactions at the trade deadline. The team that will be most involved, in, in the, the team involved in the most transactions, will be the Nashville Predators. They've just got lots of pieces that they can they can move for for draft choices. And you know, Roman Yossi is out week to week currently. Um, you know, uh, Ryan Ellis has, has been out for quite a while. I think he's due back at the end of the month. And the one. The, the number one player on, on our trade board and on everybody else's is, is Matthias Eckholm, who's playing sensationally on a team that is going nowhere. And I think that Boston is interested in him. Winnipeg is interested in him. I, I wouldn't mind seeing the Flames, you know, at least inquire about, uh, about Eckholm. I think that in terms of the culture that they're trying to, to build here, I guess that he plays the left side, which is not ideal. Um, I, I just like him as a player. You know, I, I watch him play. Um, he's a heavy, physical, skilled guy. I think he's Jake Muzzin, you know, plus, uh, you know, a half, a, half a, little, a little bit better. And so if a guy like that's available and if there's a way you can make it work, because it's, it's way more difficult than you and I trading players in fantasy, but, boy, that, if he's available... Um, yeah, I'd like to see him. Uh, I'd like to see him here, or you know, or, or put it this way: I think whoever ends up with Matthias Ekholm is going to be very, very happy with the player. 
Another team in kind of the the, the Toronto neighborhood, uh, the Colorado Avalanche. I, I'm really fascinated by them. They've been a wonderfully constructed team, but Landis Cog needs a new contract at the end of the year, and so does Kale McCarr, and I can't imagine that will be cheap. So it, it kind of feels like this might also be Colorado's best time to take a bit of a run. Do, do you anticipate the Avalanche being a, a team that's busy at the deadline? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Well, first of all, I, I think if you're if you're Colorado and you don't go out and get goaltending depth, I think you're you're being a bit short-sighted because Pavel Pavel Francouz, their nominal backup, hasn't played a minute this year. Um, you know, Grubauer has been overworked, I think, and has played very well. I mean, he was the player of the week, I think, just a week ago. So he's been excellent. He's answered a lot of questions about uh, about you know his ability to to play a lot of games. He hasn't been injured, but I just think that they have to go out and get some kind of goaltending insurance policy because, you know, last year in the playoffs they were down to Michael Hutchinson and it wasn't good enough. So, to me, you know, they should be inquiring after Jonathan Bernier for sure because Bernier had played, has played there before. Um, I, I don't think it would be an unreasonable thing to inquire after Jonathan Quick. Again, uh, you know, big-time cap issues there, but not a lot of money. That, you know, like Quick's cap is 5.8, but his, his salary is 3.5 and it drops to 3 and then it drops to 2.5. So, if you're one of those teams that cares about the actual dollars on the contract, Quick is actually pretty cheap. You just have to have, find the salary cap space, which is something that, that Colorado is, is – that's the issue there. They, they, they probably need to be one of those dollar-in, dollar-out kind of teams. But, but I do think that they, they can get a fairly cheap addition in goal, and I do think that they'll, they'll be after another forward. Um, might not be a sexy piece, but I, I, like, I love their you know, top six forwards, and I find – the bottom group is kind of indistinguishable from them, themselves. Like they, they just need like a Brad Richardson, one of those guys that can kind of dig in and win faceoffs and kill penalties, and and you know just seems to you know play on and on and on for years and years and years, and just you know becomes one of those instant coaches' favorite types. So, you know, a, a Derek Ryan type, some, somebody along those lines. You know, I even think. Uh, I'd like to see a little bit more toughness on, on that bottom group there, and and I mean, you know, I, I don't think that the Flames are. Uh, I think they're just evaluating everything right now uh, because uh, you know of the, of the coaching change. But but I, I always thought that, that Sam Bennett might be a fit in Colorado, just in terms of kind of the snarl and the tenacity that that he has. I, I don't know. I, to me, that that that's a place where where you know he might help because I think it really does fall off after about seven forwards there and, and you know he might be able to get a role in the top nine there um, and and contribute something in the playoffs because as you know that's the one thing that they you know as you say in your question or implying your question you know this should be their year because uh, uh, Makar is going to be expensive and Landis Cog is going to be expensive and you probably can't bring Saad back he's on an expiring contract so they they may have a real good window right now and. I think they need to take advantage of it. Uh, last one for you. As we do uh, approach the deadline, did you? We know how complicated it can be, but as we've just gone through today, there are a number of teams with uh, needs on either end of the, the, the winning spectrum, I suppose. Yeah. Do you anticipate this being a, a busy time now in, in the NHL, or, or do you think the complications are going to be just too much for teams to overcome? Well, I, I think there'll be a lot of transactions, but I think there'll be the, the transactions will be the type where, you know, again, it, it depends on how closely you pay attention to hockey, because there are some people that are completely into the minutia of the game, and so every transaction is an interesting transaction. But there are also a, not, a number of hockey fans that, that you know, in, enjoy it peripherally, but when you start to dig down into the players that are on the taxi squads and the bottom forwards, and, uh, and, and, and they don't get very excited if they don't really recognize the names. And so that, that's how I will characterize this uh, trade deadline in my mind. I think that most of the transactions are going to involve rentals for all of the reasons we talked about uh, before, the financial implications. And I, I don't think there will be a, a lot of very sexy names. I mean, you know, I, I look at, you know, I mean, who, who are the biggest names that might be traded? Maybe Ricard Raquel, uh, maybe Jake DeBrusque. Uh, but but I, I really do believe that it'll be like the the Alex Goligoskis and the Nick Cousinses and uh, um, you know players along those lines that will be trading teams. So you know useful strategic additions, but not anyone that is probably going to make a difference. Because I always go back to the same thing. Like when you when you win the Stanley Cup, if you're Tampa, if you're Washington, if you're St. Louis, why do you win? You don't win because of the 
you know, the, the secondary piece you pick up at the trade deadline. It's because Ryan O'Reilly was sensational in the playoffs, or Kucherov was sensational in the playoffs, or Vasilevsky. So your best players still have to be your best players. I hate saying that because it's such a cliche, um, but I think people lose sight of that fact, that, you know, your core group has to deliver if you want to win four playoff rounds. And, and um, you know, very, very rarely does, does a player come in at the trade deadline and make that much of a difference, the, the, the absolute difference between winning and losing. I mean, last year, you, I guess you could argue that Goudreau and uh, Coleman helped Tampa. But again, you know, they, they were very good support pieces, completed the puzzle, but they don't win unless uh, the big guys play the way they did. It's always fascinating. Eric, this was fun today. Thank you for this, and we'll chat next week. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. There is uh, Eric Dehatchuk on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, now open for limited dine-in service with all safety precautions in place. Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar, the best pizza, pasta, steaks, and ribs since 1975 at 6060 Memorial Drive in the Northeast. Uh, just putting a bow here on Hockey Central at noon. I like the suggestion in there, and I brought it up in free agency, and now, um, as he mentioned, with the injury issues going on with the Islanders, I love the idea, as we bring our producer Logan Gordon onto the program for the first time today, Logan, I love the thought of Taylor Hall and Jordan Everly joining up on the, the New York Islanders, kind of like the, the final scene, spoiler alert, from Shawshank Redemption, where Andy Dufresne and Morgan Freeman's character meet up after so many years. Uh, they are finally meeting up on a, a bright, sunny day on a, a lovely beach oceanside. Uh, I love the idea of Hall and Everly doing the same thing in New York. It's just amazing to hear you uh, make it such an accurate movie reference for... Uh... A movie I wouldn't have guessed that you had seen. Hadn't seen it before my time on mornings, and that was that was the first one they made me watch, actually, and uh, turned into one of my favorite movies. Turns out it's actually not bad. It's a uh, it's a classic, and yes, that's a that's a pretty good <laughs> reference out of the. Uh, I I guess I could be too far off going uh, comparing Shawshank Prison to Edmonton, but uh, maybe maybe a bit of a reprieve for both of them in the See, newer, greener pastures. I think the bigger reach is comparing uh, the New York Islanders to a, a, a Long Island to a like bright, sunny, beautiful destination. I think that was more the stretch comparison than the the, the Edmonton one. Fair. <laughs> uh, but that that was, I hadn't thought of that. But that is a, a very interesting point that uh, Mr. Dehachuk brings up on the program. So really enjoying the, the trade conversations that we've been having with Duha over the last little bit. I would imagine those would continue as we get closer and closer to the trade deadline. Make sure you catch our Flames Roundup highlights twice a week with Pat Steinberg. Look for it online on Twitter, Facebook, and Sportsnet.ca/slash960. They're a bit more fun to watch these days, and they're brought to you by Brightside by ATB, a new banking app to help you spend and save for what you love. I think another step forward for the Calgary Flames after last night's win over the Edmonton Oilers. I don't know if it's a gigantic one, but it's a step in the right direction for the Flames. We will break it all down as the big show starts next.